You told me when we built this, there would be hordes at the gate. I don't see the hordes at the gate. Where where are the hordes waiting for this product? And so, you know, we had in that moment to make kind of a pivot, right? The, the kind of classic, like, is this the thing? We gave up on the, the way we were trying to solve the problem, but not the problem. Hey, and welcome to the Finterview, a fintech podcast where each episode, we have an awesome guest speaker join us to discuss all things payments. Today, we are joined by Jeff Keltner, SVP at Upstart, a Lentech based in California. Hey, Jeff. Great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Really excited to get uh, someone on the other side of the pond uh, onto the interview. I'm in sunny London. That's sunny London for you listeners. I can't believe it myself. Yet somehow still, Jeff's face is brighter than mine at, uh, at 9.0. Now they're going to know when we recorded this, Daniel. They're going to know. <laughs> Look at the weather. I know the day. Exactly. They'll they'll have us down. Um, Jeff, I, I'd love you to just maybe give a, a brief uh, intro on your background, uh, what you do at Upstart, and your your contributions and your thoughts on the ecosystem today. Well, that's a that's a big opener. I have a degree in computer engineering, which I have never put to proper official use, writing uh, software code professionally, other than in an internship or two while I was in college. It. Uh, once started, it's still live. There's a funny story there. Um, but I kind of came out and spent my formative years in my career at IBM um, kind of selling, believe it or not, main, main frames or what are called AS400s, kind of mini mainframes. Uh, and then I came to Google in uh, 2006, just in time to be kind of the first business hire on what became now Google Cloud, uh, but into the enterprise division working on really at the time, Gmail for businesses, Google Docs for businesses, Google Docs and Gmail for schools, and and kind of launched and ran that particularly in the education sector. And then about six years in, the, the gentleman who was running that division named Dave Girard left to found Upstart. And uh, I called him up. I said, uh, this has been a fun ride. What's next? Uh, and uh, and hopped over as the, about the fourth person in the room uh, here at Upstart, which is a lo- little bit bigger room now. Uh, we all used to only have one conference room for the whole company. That was, and that, we didn't have a cube, just one conference room for everybody as we all worked in there all day. So here I've kind of run business development, which is, I feel like a catch-all for whatever nobody knows what is. Although I think uh, probably the best way to describe what I've done here is our CEO sometimes has described me as a Swiss army knife, which is I, I've kind of played a lot of roles. Most of them re- related to external partnerships in, in one way, shape, or form. Um, but I've run marketing here before we hired the right marketer. Uh, I've ran, uh, I've done a lot of work around how our AI models work and explaining that to external parties. Now, and I set up and in, in ran for a number of years our bank partnerships program where we really had one bank that was working with us in the beginning, and we now work with uh, 80 or more banks uh, and credit unions. And so kind of how we expand and actually bring our offering to market, not just in a direct-to-consumer with one bank partner kind of way, but in a through, through different bank and credit union partners. So I mean, that's a, a long answer to your question, but there it is. That's what I've done here at Upstart. Awesome. And uh I'd love to hear a little bit more about Upstart's story. So since founding, what was the original problem to be solved, the jobs to be done? Is it still the same today? Has the mission been achieved, but the vision uh, remains? Or or is it the case of you've you've got market share, you've solved the problem that you thought you needed to solve, and now, you, now there's a whole swathe of second order, third order consequences that you want to fix? No, I, I describe it as we've we've solved the problem in a corner and now we want to solve the problem in the whole house kind of thing, you know, like, uh, and I wouldn't say solved. We've made a, made a difference. So the, the, the vision, the mission that we started with was really um, kind of the recognition that here in the U.S., many people who are credit worthy don't have access to fairly priced credit, uh, which is to say, we, we did a study with one of the major credit bureaus here 
And it really revealed to us that more than 80% of Americans had, had never defaulted on a personal credit obligation, and yet less than half had a credit score that would qualify them for traditional bank-type credit. And we thought, well, that's crazy. And we really, one of Dave's first insights was, you know, a lot of the problem that we originally started was young people who didn't have a credit history, and most credit is based on, you know, have you had a loan and paid it back? And if the answer is no, then you don't look very creditworthy. But of course, maybe you didn't need a loan. Maybe you're so long young to have not had a loan. We said, well, we hire 22-year-olds all the time, and we kind of figure out which ones are going to do well and, and which ones we don't want to hire. And, and it works pretty well, and why can't we? So we started there. Is there other data points, signals we could use to understand creditworthiness of that consumer, ex be able to approve more of them for credit and lower their cost of credit? So that was really the founding mission, the thing that brought us here. And we've um, done that in certain segments, but certainly not in the whole market. So there's, there's, we see many, many, many more places where credit is still not as available and, and, and too expensive. Um, but the other thing maybe is interesting for your listeners is we started off with the sense that the problem was the loan, um, that like what we needed was a non-loan uh, as a way to access capital. So we actually coined the term income share agreement, which is a bit more of a term now, but we were one of the first originators of the concept, or at least the, the term income share agreement to describe a concept that was not we did not originate, but that we tried to scale, which was to allow people to receive funds in exchange for a fixed portion of their income over a duration of time, but not a fixed payment. And so the investor did not really know what kind of yield they were getting, depended on how well Jeff did in life and how much money he earned. And the, the individual didn't know how much they were going to pay, but they knew that it would always be affordable because it was a fixed portion of their income. And that was our first foray into this. And it, it did not uh, grow. you know. And I remember, I remember our CEO coming back from a board meeting. He goes, one of the board members just said, you told me when we built this, there would be hordes at the gate. I don't see the hordes at the gate. Where where are the hordes waiting for this product? And so, you know, we had in that moment to make kind of a pivot, right? The, the kind of classic, like, is this the thing? And we stayed true to our mission. We were using that product to enable access to credit, to people, to, to funding. And, and we realized that a lot of the work we'd done, the challenge with an income share agreement for anyone is how, what percentage of Jeff's income do I need to receive for the next five or 10 years in order to give him $10,000. And like, somebody's got to figure that out. And it turns out that figuring that out is very similar to underwriting a loan to Jeff. And so we took a lot of the same technology and used it to underwrite loans. But that was our initial foray into this. We, we gave up on the, the way we were trying to solve the problem, but not the problem. And I'd say we're just at the beginnings of solving it because we've got a great product and, and one small segment of lending, but there's a lot of lending left to be done that still is using outdated ways of assessing risk. Are you still trying to solve other problems for the same demographic, or is it you're looking to land and expand into new demographics? Uh, one of the key things uh, about the United Kingdom education system is that there is effectively a government-based scheme that does, at a national scale, what you described there. Namely, you get a loan for your university tuition and, uh, and a loan for your living costs. And it also get it gets automatically deducted uh, out of your salary for, if you're fortunate, six to seven years. But uh, is 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 the student market something that you're targeting, or is that something you? That was really our, you know, if you, you know, when we looked at the market, we said, you know, that the credit score system worked reasonably well for the well off, right? Like you, you had reasonable price access to credit if you were making a good amount of money and had a decent credit history and wanted a mortgage, like you got a pretty good loan. Um, and so the, the first demographic we really targeted was new borrowers and particularly because we could look at young borrowers um, because we could target 
data points that would help us understand creditworthiness better, right? To say, hey, we know what you study. We know whether you went to university or not. That's actually quite helpful, at least in understanding your likely income, right? You can look at these things and these things are highly correlated to, to repayment activity. So you go, oh, we can start to build models that in the absence of historical loans, we can actually understand credit with this. What kind of job do you have? What kind of field are you in? Um, these things are actually are quite helpful. Um, and so that was like our first place where we said, hey, we, we, see a, we see a group of people who need credit, data points that we can use to better understand credit, um, credit worthiness, and we can go, go there. I'd say we've expanded well beyond that market now. There are many people who are misunderstood by the credit system. And that, that includes, by the way, people with really high credit scores that are, that are higher risk than you might think. It includes people with middle-of-the-road credit scores. Uh, so it's all over the map. But generally, any system with inefficiency, right, like credit scores are just not a great indicator of likelihood to repay. If for no other reason, you can just think of this as a simple, a simple rubric for why they're not, not a great system. Like you have the same credit score for every kind of loan. So whether you want a thousand dollars or a million dollar mortgage, the same credit score. And like, that doesn't really make any sense, right? Like there's just, there's nothing about my credit risk for those two things that is the same. And yet, and yet we use one score and then we layer on a debt to income or a payment to income or something else. But you know, when you actually, what, what we do at the core for this is to look at uh, a on the order of 2,000 points of data on any individual application using sophisticated AI models to say, how risky is this individual? Uh, and you can get much more accurate, and not just how risky is this individual to lend to, but how risky is it to lend this amount of money over this period of time to this individual, right? Because those, those things really matter. Again, if you want $1,000 or a million dollars, it matters. And it just turns out that young people were an example of people for whom the credit score system didn't work, but people with lower incomes, people with limited credit history, people with lower credit scores. You know, if you think about a subprime loan pool, right, that's like super risky, it's like 25% defaults, 30% defaults. That, like every bank would look at that and run for the hills. Uh, and yet that means 70% of the people in that pool are paying back successfully and you're penalizing them all because you couldn't find the 30 or you're declining them all because you couldn't find the 30. And if you can find the 30, then 70% of that pool, 80% of that pool are good borrowers to whom you should be lending money. And that's that's a tremendous opportunity when people are turning away that kind of business. And so that's true, not just in the the younger demographic where we started, but we, we really think of that as across all demographics and, and borrower types that we can do that. And so we, you know, we've, we've expanded our approach to, to, to into all sorts of demographics and, and now it's different kinds of loans, right? We started with unsecured installment loans, three, five-year, $10,000 loans as kind of a product that very few financial institutions offered, um, but that many people wanted or needed often to, re to refinance credit card debt that's at 20 or 22 or 23% interest. Um, but then, you know, we have also now launched products to help you refinance automobiles, to purchase automobiles. We're, we're looking into some of the uh, home equity lending and, and, and purchase home lending. So, you know, if you think about the, this, the whole universe of lending products, we're touching a very small slice of the uni lending universe now. And, and we think that this is a, a capability that's useful across demographics and across a whole bunch of products that we are, are very uh, either not in or in, in in a very limited way as of today. It sounds interesting. And what do you think the, um, was there any data points that uh, Upstart was particularly surprised about that maybe non-directly correlated to likelihood to repay um, it from a monetary perspective? So like um, like a, a, a simple non-fintech related example would be, I, I've been listening to a, a book uh, called Outlive recently, and um, there, there's a, across all trend lines, all populations, all demographics, 
a physician identified grip strength as the um the, the single strongest link to um longevity but um I always find it interesting where you see patterns that maybe aren't directly uh, correlated, but loosely linked across demographics. And l lending is a particularly interesting case. Uh, w was there any surprises uh, that that came out of all of the work that you did? There are, um, but I, you know, so there's simple examples that are intuitive but not surprising, which is like often public sector workers, like nurses, teachers, firefighters, police officers, are. Uh, more credit worthy than their credit score money. Because this is an example where occupation was really helpful. So, I, but I think that the reality is it's a collection of little things, right? There's no like major insight. We go, oh, we saw this thing and like we got 80% better. You go, well, if that were true, the industry would have found such a thing, right? Um, relatively quickly. Uh, and so it tends to be this real collection of specific data points that is really interesting and useful, but helps a small population. And, and the magic is in the ability to ingest lots of data points and have sophisticated algorithms that can then understand how to connect these various data points in different scenarios. Like how much do I care about credit score? Well, it depends a lot. Is it a 22 year old? Um, they're not that much, right? Unless they've defaulted on stuff and then you do. But if they're like, you know, kind of an average credit score, that's probably because they just haven't done anything. So that's probably not a big deal. Now, if they're older and they have a bad credit score, it's probably because they got a lot of, there's a lot of history to that, right? So you, you end up with these things where, um, you know, you start to see if in this scenario, this matters, in this scenario, this other thing matters, in this third scenario, these two things over here matter a lot. And so you don't end up with these like really obvious insights that are like, ah, oh, yes, that bit, that, I see that now. And you, you're always fighting, I think, one of the things, your grip strength example is really interesting, which is this kind of um, misreading what the data says because you could you could read that data and go I should go get a grip strength machine and I'm going to get my grip strength back but likely it's not the strength of your forearm muscles that's increasing longevity or likely it's something you're doing that's causing increased forearm strength and increasing longevity and just increasing your forearm strength is not going to achieve whatever the second you know whatever it was that was also happening because of the thing probably just more workout more more general general physical strength is higher and that Grip strength is a measure of that, and it was the working out. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know the research here, but I would imagine it's not the strength of forearms. It's linked. It's something that the people who have higher forearm strength are also doing. And so you, there's this. You got to be really careful when you look at the data. I'll give you a, a very counterintuitive example of this, which is during COVID, everybody got really nervous. Unemployment spiked, uh, and you started to go, "What's what's going to happen to defaults when unemployment spikes?" And so you might you might build a machine learning model, right? You might go, "Hey, let's let's take a bunch of data about the economy." Uh, and figure out how it's impacting uh, losses. That'd be a reasonable thing to do. And one of the things you learned during COVID, if you did that, was that increase in unemployment results in better repayment of loans. And then you go, hey, that's really weird. Like generally I would think that unemployment going up causes loan defaults to go up. And it, historically it always has. And this time it didn't. Uh, and it didn't because as unemployment went up due to COVID and shutdowns, the government introduced large degrees of stimulus into the economy which actually caused payments. So we had to go and go, well, we better put a stimulus dollars variable into the model because otherwise it's starting to learn that unemployment is good for repayments, which is really not what you want it to learn. Um, it needs to learn that stimulus dollars are good for repayments. And in this case, outweighed the negative impacts of unemployment, but that that's not, you know, those two things are not the same. So you, you have all sorts of places like that where the data can tell you something and you've got to, you know, machine learning, AI or not, sometimes you need to look at the output and go, huh, does that make sense? Or is there something maybe we're, we're missing? Is there some confounder, some 
uh, root cause that we're not seeing and we're seeing some weird behavior um, in the model or, or the data sets because of that. So that was the one example where we kind of went, hold on a minute, I think we're learning the wrong, and that, that just to be clear, went, we didn't have any models in production that thought unemployment was good and we should like increase rates or anything. But we definitely um, you know, had some models of like, how does the macro economy impact losses that we were looking at and going, there's some really weird answers coming out of this model. Um, what do we think is causing that? And you realize there's these holes in your data sets or places where you're looking at correlation and thinking it's causation. It's really a, a confounding third variable that's causing both things and, and is doing something weird. And so you've got you to be careful on how you look at those things. Yeah, I, I can imagine someone uh, busy coding away on AutoGPT building their lending model there. Uh, probably didn't consider that. And uh, if if you're letting machine do this, it's going to be sending its sales bots down to the unemployment center uh, and spraying loans around. Uh, it, it, it's an obvious retrospective, but uh, something I absolutely would never have thought of uh, on, unless I was focused on solving that problem in the industry. Neither did we until that moment where it went, hey, that's a little strange. But you know, it, it was a very strange time because we saw unemployment spike massively and we saw loan performance across the board and all sorts of categories improve. Losses were down, you know, at one point, half of historical norms. And we went, how can you have the highest unemployment filings in history and losses at half of historical norms? Those two things don't make sense. But they, you know, so you you, you dig deeper and you go, oh, yeah, I mean, COVID, government stimulus, there's a story that makes sense there, but it um it's not not on first blush always obvious what that's going to be. And you've got to make sure you've got the right points of data to be able to to make sense of these things. Yeah. And potentially factor in the the can kit down the road and, and and where it shall land no doubt the problem will arrive eventually the music has to stop somewhere well yeah i mean we're all kind of living through that as we record this certainly you know most of the government stimulus at least in the u.s has stopped uh, and so now we're, we're waiting to see you know savings rate went up for a while people were saving some of this money now they're spending some of the money that was saved up now they got to go back to people that were um, you know, on unemployment or going back to work. And so you're seeing kind of a normalization of that environment. I say normalization, but we're also in a rising interest rate, rising inflation environment. So it's not exactly normalization because you're seeing the end of some effects and maybe the beginning of others. And it's caused a, a very different macro environment than what you saw then. And um, we're, it's a little bit unprecedented. I, the, the younger think that, you know, 5% federal funds rates are unprecedented, but I, I do have to remind them, like, you know, we, we've lived through periods of non-zero interest rates before. They may be not during everyone's career span, but, they, but you know, it, in, in living memory, there are periods of time with higher interest rates and, and higher levels of inflation that we've experienced for the last decade or two. Yeah, it's uh, certainly not unprecedented, but um, it is unprecedented for I'm, I'm going to guess a high percentage of Oxart's initial target market. Um, I, I just want to touch a little bit on everyone's favorite subject, uh, regulations. I'd love to learn how Oxart has handled the transition from uh, unsecured uh, lending through to secured lending in, in the UK and Europe. Those are very different markets. How does it play into the, the care you have to take in how you handle funds, who you give these loans to? And where are the constraints? Yeah, it's it's been a fascinating transition. So maybe I'll back up and give you a little piece of like kind of where we apply AI because it really applies to the difference between an unsecured and a secured product here. So, you know, I, so we got into the business to kind of believing we could better assess creditworthiness. Uh, and, and we found that to be largely true and, and the model is highly successful, not still working and they're still getting better, but, but we feel very vindicated that we've been able to do that. But somewhere in the middle of the journey, around 2016 into 2016, early 2017, 
we started to kind of, you know, we were at that time doing a phone call with every applicant, doing some knowledge based authentication. really Jaff, you know, where did you go to school? You know, some of the, the standard stuff. Uh, and we were requiring documentation for identity or income for pretty much everybody uh, in some sort of a, you know, uploaded document form. It's standard, maybe bank view of digital application. And we kind of like, well, this costs us, you know, it takes a lot of time to do this. It slows the process down. The borrower has to come back to the website to upload a document. Then they got to wait for us to like look at it. And maybe we don't connect with them on the first phone call. We said, what if we just like didn't? Like we didn't call them. We didn't ask for any documents. Just, just for a few people, smaller loans, just where we really have very low fraud signal, you know, like what would happen? Um, and so we got to a place in the unsecured where we started doing what we call instant approval. And generally it just means that you know, both the underwriting and the verification process are done in session. So you could sit down and by the time you close your browser, you're fully done, money's on the way, you sign the documents, it's, it's fully complete. And we were kind of stunned that we saw uh, uplifting conversions between two and three X when we offer that experience to when even we had a single document, just upload a photo of your driver's license. We could double, somewhere between double and triple volume of originations by just removing that step. So then we said, maybe not just small loans, maybe not a small, like maybe, maybe we should do this for more. Uh, and on the platform now, it's close to 75% of loans are originated through that kind of instant process, which of course, it's not 75% of borrowers because or applicants because more of them convert. So it's a smaller percentage of the applicants who get that experience. But that became a huge driver for growth and for customer satisfaction because it turned out that your best customers are not only rate sensitive when you're lending to them, they're also effort sensitive. They don't want to be asked for five documents in a phone call. They want to be able to get through the process quickly. Uh, and so that's been a, a huge driver. Now, now I've given you the context, I get to your question, which is like, that's a lot harder to do in a secured product <laughs> because you have to secure it. And so we've uh, gone through a lot of processes. We've actually been, you know, one of the joys of uh, being in the US is that Certain, certain times we're one country and certain times we're 50 states. And in a lot of the life, you know, the liens and transferring of titles of property for like a car um, are state, state regulated, state managed processes. And so we have some states where we could be pretty close to that instant experience because they've got digital verification of ownership. We can do VIN lookups. Um, so you start having all these like, not really AI, but like what kind of data sources are out there that I could dial into to verify your insurance, to verify if you really own this vehicle, to verify what kind of vehicle it is, what trim level it was, so I could understand collateral value, let's say on a vehicle. Um, and then there are some states where we still have, they don't even accept electronic signatures. So not only can I not do it all through APIs, I've got to do a, you know, usually a DocuSign, but I, I can't even do DocuSign. So I've got to do some places I can't even do a digital with the power of attorney. I've got to do an actual wet SIG and like, okay. And so we've been working on how do we, you know, simplify that process <laughs> where we can, how do we uh, work with states to tell them, hey, you know, digital signatures are kind of here. You, maybe we ought to be supporting digital signatures in different places. There's some, there's some states where it's not clear if they support or not. So we've been, you know, working with them to figure out where we can get clarity on if, if the DMDs will support, the Departments of Motor Vehicle will support digital signature for transfer of title. So th that process adds a whole bunch more care in, in kind of manual processing. But it, it'll bring me to one of the things I believe, which is like the things that are hard to do are a good moat for your business. Like sometimes my CEO goes, just like, man, how hard is this? I go, it's, re it's really hard, man. It's, re it's really hard. It's good. And I'm not sure I always like the answer good for things being really hard, but it does mean it's that much harder for someone else to replicate what you do, uh, right? And so when we go through the, hey, this is like a really difficult thing to build, but really high value for the customer. Sometimes the difficult to build is good because it means it's going to be harder for somebody to come and go, ah, we can do that too. That's just a couple API calls and a little Python script. And hey, we can, we can automate the same thing you did. So 
we've been, you know, there's obviously a lot of lending and in, uh, in secured. We've been really diligent. How do we like reduce the friction in that process? Because it's a very highly frictionful process now. And I think applying machine learning and a little bit of government relations to that is a, is a huge win for consumers and, and something we're going to keep pushing on. Can you talk to the, the, the output of this? So are you, are you guys the liquidity as well? Are you the issuer of the loan or are you the software that makes somebody else's money decide whether it should be dispersed or not? Yeah, there's kind of three parts of the lending process in my mind. There's a software that's actually running it. There's the financial institution that's actually making the loan. And that's not us. We All of our loans, we work with the AD bank and credit unions who end up originating those loans. Some of those loans, those banks and credit unions hold on their balance sheets. They end up being the capital source for those as well. Um, some either because they've got a volume of customers that exceeds their capital capabilities. A more common experience today for banks because they're often liquidity crunched in the current moment where deposits have been moving to high interest rate money market funds, particularly after Silicon Valley Bank and signature bank issues. Um, and so some of the banks will originate and then sell some of the credit into the capital markets where they'll be owned by a variety of uh, funds and, and investors uh, who, who are owning them for yield over time. And so we, we don't serve really as the originator for any loans uh, or typically as a capital. We, we, play a, we own some of our loans uh, that originate at the buyer bank parts. We'll buy some of them back in certain instances, usually for R&D. If you think of it as like, hey, here's a new product. We're going to get into auto loans. We've never done it before. And they go, well, how do I know that your model's working? Well, let's, let us own the, risk, the credit risk for the first bunch of loans, pro prove out the performance of the model and the risk estimations. And then we can, um, and, and then the banks and credit unions and investors will start go, hey, we're comfortable with the performance. So we'll, we'll do some of that R&D experience on our own balance sheet. But by and large, it's not our business model to be earning revenue as interest income. Uh, we, we do it on occasion for certain purposes, but it's not core to what we think of as our business. So that's the kind of the role we play. And, and we view that as uh, our ability to work with banks and credit unions to provide a technology that can help them simplify the application experience, right? So again, automate the underwriting experience and estimate risk. But every partner of ours has a different uh, set of criteria over what kinds of risk they're comfortable taking, Right, so those might be hard traditional hard criteria, minimum credit score, or maximum debt to income ratio. I don't want to play outside of this box. That's fine. And then then our risk models will come in and tell them, here's a level of risk for this loan. And they go, well, we don't want that level of risk. And that's fine. And then how they want to price a given level of risk with which they are comfortable. That's totally unique to the, the individual partner. So we, you know, we help them understand how the, the system is working, how it's making risk assessments, what those risk assessments mean, but how they want to turn a given level of risk into a offer of credit or not, and at what rate, that's really unique to the lending partner and something they control. Uh, and we think that's really important that they have the, the ability to kind of, they're controlling the level of risk they want to take on. They're controlling how far outside of their traditional credit box they might want to trust a risk model. And, and they're controlling the pricing because they all have different kind of return and business objectives that they might need to meet. So that's that's all unique to the lending partners. Interesting. And just one final thing, something that we're seeing at the beginning of the of, uh, of the evolution of here in the UK and Europe is the post-loan monitoring of, of use of funds. So uh, obviously with any loan, it's, it's backward looking typically. What has this person, um, what crumbs of information has this person left that I can pick up and, and make a decision about? However, if you look at invoice finance, it's kind of always done this. It's what are you going to do with this money and how are you going to get a return on this? Uh, we're starting to see that bleed into other parts of lending now where if someone is getting a loan, let's say a £2,000 loan for a TV, 
there's lenders taking steps into saying, was this money actually used for uh, for set, for said purchase? And they're starting to post loan gathering additional data, not only on the repayment of the loan, but on the uh, the validity of the uh, original request, and then starting to tie tie veracity of requests to uh, propensity to be honest, decreasing the risk of uh, de deliberate non-repayment. Uh, is anything like that starting to evolve in the U.S.? Yeah, you certainly see it. Certainly more so, I think, in credit cards because you have uh, a more real, you know, credit cards are line of, lines of credit. You have a way to respond to something you see post-origination, which is you can increase or decrease the credit line, right? You can, you can kind of change things. So if you, depending on what you're seeing, people are definitely monitoring the transactions and using those as very, very clear risk signals and figuring out how do I think about managing my risk in an ongoing way with what's happening I think I would imagine that the buy now, pay later folks are doing similar, something similar, because you have, again, a repeat borrowing behavior um, that you can actually adjust. Uh, we see something similar. So if you think about it, I've talked about two areas where we use like machine learning, artificial intelligence on underwriting credit risk, automating the verification process, doing fraud, identity income verifications in a, in a low friction way. The other two places you really see it are in marketing, targeting, who am I going to market with what message on what medium, what's the most effective cost efficient way to, to reach the consumers who might be interested in a product like this. And then the last one is in this area, which is in, Hey, okay, you've got the loan, but like, who's at biggest risk of going delinquent? Uh, how might I get ahead of a potential delinquency? Maybe it's a deliberate non-repayment. Maybe it's just someone who's struggling with something. Can I be proactive in offering a forbearance? Can I risk signal and rate? If I've got a call center rep who's going to call 20 people, how do I know who the first 20 people are that I should be calling in terms of likelihood to get on the phone versus getting in an SMS versus getting in an email? Maybe you want to talk about what content might actually most resonate. Maybe there's uh, actual educational content you can get in front of a bar where you think is highly likely to be at risk that helps them stay on track. Things like that are uh, much more nascent for us, but I think you're seeing a lot of interest in the question of, can we start to understand what the, what behavior I can see post-origination, whether that's things in the checking account, things on the actual line of credit or loan line, again, use of funds. We, we certainly, a large portion of borrowers that come through Upstart's platform are borrowing money to repay a credit card. Lower rate, fixed term, they want to get off of a revolving debt into installment debt at a lower interest rate. You know, they might ask for more money than they have credit card debt. And you go, well, that's a strange uh, thing that, uh, you know, can't obviously can't use that. Many might borrow the amount of money that they have credit card debt, and then the credit card debt decreases by some lesser amount of money. Well, yeah, I had $10,000 in credit card debt. Now I have three, and I have a $3,000 uh, vacation or something like that, right? Uh, and, and so you see those things, and those things are certainly risk signals you can look at in terms of, what might happen in post-originations. And you obviously can't, unless you want to fix the use of funds in some way, you can't really prevent that up front, right? You can't require the use of funds. We've never done a verification or a, a limited use of funds in terms of disbursement for the unsecured loans. Very different in a secured loan, right? Like you're often paying the dealer directly in a car purchase, for example, or paying the realtor directly for a home purchase. There's no way to, to have a different amount of borrowed or to use the money for some other purpose because it's just not possible in the system. But for the unsecured loans you do, and it becomes really fascinating what you can learn about the risk levels of your customers and what you might want to do from a communication servicing engagement point of view to get ahead of potential delinquencies before you even see them in the portfolio. That's super interesting. And I suppose something that I've always been interested in is, is, is this a zero-sum game where the ultimate improvement here is no one else is getting money, just people are pricing the risk more accurately so that when there is a downturn in the market, it doesn't take as many people down. 
Or is the market being grown because everyone has more data on people who would never have ever been able to get credit. Those people become credit worthy and there's increased economic stimulus rolling around the economy because of it. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, certainly the use of AI will expand the availability of credit in most markets. I mean, it's going to be market dependent, but generally, again, you just get back to how a traditional financial institution operates. They take a high risk category and they don't lend there even though a high-risk category is by far majority likely to repay a credit obligation that's extended to them, right? So when you get better risk modeling and you go, hey, I, I used to think this was one pool of people that all I could know is it was 70% likely to pay back and 30% likely to default, and I just had to not play there. If I can now turn that into a bunch of people who are 10% likely to default and a bunch of people who are 90% likely to default, well, then I can lend to these people that used to be in the 30% pool but are now in the 10, and I know who those 90% are, and I'm not going to lend to there, and that's how I... I think it's one of the things about better credit modeling that sometimes people don't understand, which is they want it to only help people, right? Like only use AI if it's going to help the applicant. I said, well, the only way I can help an applicant in a risky pool is to identify the 10 people I didn't want to lend to in the risky pool. It has to hurt those people, but it can help 50 people by, by, by hurting the 10, by meaning I can, I can identify that they're not 30% likely to default, they're 70% likely to default. Now I'm, I can essentially avoid those applicants, but by doing so, I could open up the larger portion of applicants in that pool that was previously blended and say, hey, these are good borrowers, this is good risk, I can take it. And so I think almost everywhere there's that kind of inefficiency where there are pools of people where there's a large portion that are good and they're all being declined access or they're being sent to a payday or a buy here, pay here lender at exorbitant rates. And I think we could pull them into the traditional financial system by identifying. And again, you have to identify the high risk. That's the whole, the whole magic is identifying the small number of high risk people in that medium risk pool. So you can identify the risk as low risk and put them into something that a bank or a credit union or a traditional financial institution can support and can lend to. But it's going to expand the availability of credit to a lot of people, or it's going to bring them back into you know, a traditional financial product as opposed to, you know, a payday loan. I don't know how that is in, in the in the UK market or the EU, but like they're just outrageously expensive here in the US. People paying hundreds of percent annual rate to get access to small amounts of money on short duration just because no one knows how to underwrite them. And no one in the banking industry to traditionally can underwrite them cost effectively. Like when you want a five hundred dollar or a two hundred dollar loan, you know, as soon as you walk into the branch and talk to a to an underwriter, uh, that bank is upside down. They went off. Yeah, I just spent $50 on a loan for which I'll make 10. Like, I, I can't make my money back no matter what I charge. And as soon as we can lower the cost to originate and the ability to underwrite, then you start serving people with a much more reasonable product at a, at a much wider scale. So I see just enormous amounts of opportunity to improve the number of people who are getting loans and getting loans at what we would call a traditional bank or reasonably priced rates. Yeah, I think the phrase payday loan has a, at least a real bitter taste in people's mouths in the United Kingdom which largely I think it, 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 it's not purely around the math behind uh, the, the issuance of the loan. It's really the propensity for uh, enforcement of collection. You, you hear about a lot of malpractice, but certainly I think if you actually stood up a payday loan uh, versus what some of the tier one global tier one banks do as part of their overdraft offering, it ran the numbers, you'd actually find... And this is not a defensive payday loan, but purely from a maths perspective and tenor of loan, overdraft APRs are as brutal as any other type of loan. The only difference is because it's from your bank, the next time cash goes in, it auto repays that loan back. If, if some of the 
payday loan platforms had access to the auto repayment, maybe the uh, maybe the maths wouldn't skyrocket the way it does. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I, the other thing I think people have a bitter taste about payday loans for, at least as they exist in the U.S., is they typically are unaffordable in the sense that almost everyone revolves one loan into a second, into a third, into a fourth, because they can't actually make the payment stream. So the only way to pay off the payments is to to borrow again. And that product that's kind of almost built to cycle you into a never-ending thing, I think is, it doesn't have to be constructed that way. You could have a loan. I mean, the idea that people need a $500 short-term loan is a thing, and we should be making available small-dollar short-term lending. But you, And I think you could do it very reasonably. I think many of the proprietors today of those the, those kind of loans do not do it in a consumer-friendly way. And certainly, there's a there's a big push in the U.S. to, to move away from the overdraft fees um, being such a large thing and to have this kind of smaller-dollar loan available. And I think most of the banks and credit unions I talk to, if they could understand the risk and they could reduce the operating cost, would be happy to have a small dollar short duration loan available to their customers. They think this would be a great product. I just like I can't underwrite the risk very well. And as soon as I try and like put my traditional processes in front of it, I lose money on the OPEX for it. And so I think that's where they're saying, hey, give me a better solution. And, and that is a, a category of loan upstart is trying to apply AI to to say, hey, how do we get to, you know, the, the two week, four week, two hundred dollar, three hundred dollar loan that can be priced uh, at a reasonable rate, right? Double digit percentage, not triple digit percentages, uh, and can be friendly to the consumer. Can we make you aware, hey, if you can't make a payment, we don't like make you borrow again with a new fee. We just like extend it. We don't let you borrow again until you've like finished paying off, but we can, you know, just extend your payment stream and give you a way to actually solve these amenities. Because it is a huge challenge that uh, many consumers need access to short duration financing for emergencies, unexpected life events. And it's just not a great alternative to the payday loan today is serving a very real need that, you know, overdrafts is not not a great solution because it is quite expensive, particularly if you pay it off in a week, like the effective APRs are outrageous, but nobody's really at scale come up with a better solution yet. And I think we, I really think AI can can take us there and something we're trying very hard to to make possible for all of our bank partners and credit union partners. Like how do we, how do we allow them to do this? Because I think it'd be a tremendous, and many of them, by the way, come to me and they say, Jeff, I, I don't even want to make money on it. Like I want to not lose money. But it's not going to be like my private. I'm not going to try and like replace my mortgage business and make a make profits on this thing. I just want to like help my customers. But I need a lot, not lose a ton of money while I'm helping my customers uh, in this scenario. So we 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 take it for the goodwill if we could just break even. But we can't even do that the way our technology is built. So can you help me do that? That's something we're working really hard on. Sure. And I suppose one of the things that enables you to make those decisions is by having a a, a higher degree of insight per customer. I know in the UK and European market, whilst on the one hand, uh, there's a huge push for privacy, GDPR, and um, everyone's least favorite waste of money, cookie tabs in in Europe. But on the other hand, these credit agencies uh, are responsible for harvesting data to ensure that people can make somewhat informed credit decisions on who they give money to. How, how do you how do you think about you know the security and privacy of customer data when when you're processing such a large amount of it to be able to hopefully give them some cash? Yeah, it's a great question, and there's a lot of layers of how you think about the data you collect. Because often, from a privacy point of view, we, for instance, ask a lot of questions that are not don't come from the credit file. The credit files are a bit unique because they are collected by a third party. I think there'll be some push to have better protections around some of that data. But we ask for a lot of information that's not coming from the credit file. And then you go, well, 
uh, okay, and the user is consenting to give it to you because they're actually filling in a form telling you this information. But then you want to figure out how do I make sure it's tightly secured when it's here, make sure it's only accessible internally to employees who need to access it. Are there ways, for instance, as you're building machine learning models for credit, like you don't really need the PII attached to that data anymore, right? I want to know the credit information and the repayment history, but I don't really need to have a database that has all that information and the name and address of the person because those things are no longer relevant to me, right? Once the loans originate, I mean, they are it, in a servicing system, they really matter, but the data that, you know, the servicing system doesn't need all the credit data that was used to originate that loan. They need to know the name and address and how much they owe. And so starting to actually segment what data gets stored, where kind of anonymizing um, portions of the data as you store it for uses in a certain area so that you're not having a trove of data that's in a single database. It's like, hey, it's got PII in it. Like, you know, a lot of our data science stuff doesn't doesn't have that stuff. It can be a little frustrating when you go, can you tell me about all the loans in Florida? They go, oh, we don't have Florida. We don't have state attached to that database. But it's nice because it does mean that we're respecting privacy. So I think it's uh, really critical that we we do a good job here. But you're also stuck, you know, like by law in the U.S., we're required to keep all the records used to make a loan decision for a certain period of years uh, in case of customer dispute. So you have to keep some of that in certain places. But again, that doesn't have to be the only database you have. It can be sitting there used for record purposes while I have a servicing system with limited data and a machine learning system with limited data. And it doesn't eliminate the problem, but it certainly reduces the tax fear. And um, you have to think of it in that layered defense approach where you're saying, how do I really protect this in the best way I can, uh, given the needs and concerns? So it's, uh, it's a tough question. I think it'll be really interesting. And then some of it, you like, we just don't need to keep certain things. I do think the privacy question in Europe will be really interesting. Like, for instance, on the, on the small data, on the small loan front, one of the more interesting pieces of data can come from the cash flows in a bank account. And in Europe, you guys have nice open banking laws, so we can actually often access that data, you know, with the user's consent. How much of that do you want to store? Like it can be really useful, but it's also like really dangerous to have that kind of data sitting around in your database. So I think there's real questions about how much. And then again, if you want to build models on top of things, you don't need the entire set of data. Are there things I can pull out of that data? Are there ways I can de you know, I can anonymize, depersonalize the data to store for for learning and, and records purposes, and then have limited sets of data over here. And I think those things are really important to consider as you think about building out systems because there's going to continue to be, I think, a push for privacy. And my sense is in the US and in the EU, the regulators don't believe industry will self-regulate. So we're going to have some some rules uh, required upon us. But I do think the more we can be smart about how we handle these things and use a layered approach, the, the better off we'll be in the future. But just a slight, slightly different tack, but continuing in the same vein uh, of consumer protection. How do you view the challenge of fraud? It seems like an attack vector. I'll use someone else's details to get some sweet, sweet, sweet money that they'll get in trouble for not paying back. How do you deal with that? It's hard. It's a real problem. I mean, I think you've got to just start with the assumption, just reverse your mental model. Just assume that everybody's personal information is in the hands of a bad actor. Because more or less, after the number of data breaches that have happened, many, many consumers worth of data is out there. Uh, and so, you know, you got to separate out the different kinds of attacks. Uh, you know, synthetic identity fraud is a big issue of like non-real <laughs> identities, but so is just stolen identity fraud, right? Where I'm taking out a loan. Uh, we've even seen elder abuse fraud where uh, an older person is being forced to apply for a loan by a third party who's going to take the proceeds and they're, they're kind of being tricked or forced into making an application. We've caught some of those things. And so you got to really think about the different factors. And again, it's, it's a layered defense approach, right? There's no you're not going to find one vendor who goes, oh, I got a score, plug this into your system and you're good to go. Like, oh my God, no, there's a thousand different pieces. And it's also a question of, 
you know, like I said, we saw we, we've gone to seventy five percent of loans are uh, originated in an automated way. Uh, that means twenty five percent aren't uh, because we cannot get comfortable through purely digital and data oriented means to to originate that loan without coming to actually reviewing some documentation. And so it, it's going to be a continuous arms race, by the way, because every time like these generative AI tools are going to be a boon for making fake IDs, uh, and they're going to be a boon for identifying fake IDs. And there's going to be a little you know, tit for tat going back and forth. But I'd say you've got to be, this is one area where I think firms do a good job of collaborating. So one key piece of advice, there's lots of consortiums. There's, you know, if you, if you're in charge of identifying fraud at one firm, I I will promise you that the people at the other firms would love to trade notes. And most of us are not trying to um, win the battle by being the best fraud detection. Like we we kind of feel like the whole industry wins if we all get better at this. And so I think there's a lot of sharing going on in best practices. And then I will just say for anybody who's starting a company, like, watch very carefully your data. Like we we catch things that look suspicious just watching what's happening on the system. And one of the interesting attack vectors, uh, or, or just not attack vectors, but realities of how bad actors behave now is they poke and prod at the system in small ways. And then when they think they've found a weakness, they hit it hard because they know it's going to be open for a period of time and they're going to figure it out. And so, you know, we started at one point, we just saw like, tens of thousands of applications one morning from like a city and some random small city and some say, that doesn't, there's like, there's more applications than people from that, you know? So it, many of them get much more sophisticated than that over time, but we can start to see spikes in behavior that didn't look natural. And you want to go, we, do we get like a CNN article or, you know, were we on the front cover of some big magazine or newspaper this morning and like people found us or like, is there a bad actor? And so you, you got to be watching that data quickly because there is a matter of like, no matter how good your fraud detection is, there will be times when people find a gap and they come for you. And the quicker you can find it and shut it down and then remedy it, um, the better off you will be. And so it's it's you know it's at every layer of the system you've got to be watching for this, and it's something you just have to be careful because people are some of the attacks we've seen indicate a very targeted approach to our platform. Like not hey try this injection from this code that base is probably getting open source system is probably being used. It was like no, 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 go through the upsource process and enter this on this form and this on this field and this on this field and then say this in an email. And then like, you could probably trick the system into getting you through. And I went, I mean, it was very specific the way they were attacking the system. So you've got to really have an eye out, be ever watchful and, and trying to always keep your defenses improving because it, it is a crazy world out there. And it can be really quiet for a while and you just can't be lulled into a false sense of security because uh, nothing's happening. Because when it happens, it can come fast and furious. And f- from approval to cash in hand i'm i'm guessing part of that is the competitive edge of the lender uh sure he can onboard you but it'll take you five days to get that cash and you need it now no most most of the time to get cash now for us is just um the actual transfer mechanisms like you know we love instantaneous the fed the federal reserve here in the u.s is supposed to unveil and start launching their fed now um you know instantaneous transfer we're not privy to that yet so we typically use ach transfers and that takes an overnight processing window, uh, but we usually, you know, 24 hours for final approval. And again, for the borrowers, you get the instant experience. It's like a 30 minute on average end to end process. So you're talking about 30 minutes, and then the next you wake up the next morning and, and cash is in the account, which is pretty good. A little longer for secured stuff, right? Where you, you know, it, it can take a bit of time. But um, I think that I do think that the, you know, I don't know that we want to delve into crypto in the time we have left. But if nothing else, what what I see happening in crypto is it is 
forcing the central entities. Like if you think about the use cases for crypto, other than speculation and a belief in decentralization, which again, that's a whole different topic. Like why does a normal person use crypto? They go, well, I want instantaneous transfer without massive fees cross-border. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to find that instantaneous transfers, lower cross-border transfer fees are things that are going to come to traditional financial institutions. So we're going to find a way to allow you to move money. Now we've got Zelle in the US, right? Where I can send money to another person through Zelle and it's like, instantaneous, bank account to bank account. Uh, and it, it does in, in a minute or two for, for accounts that have been verified in the system, it's just done. And so I think we're going to see more instantaneous payment mechanisms, uh, more things like that being done by the traditional institutions because they're going to be forced to. And I think the typical person doesn't really want to use crypto for that. They don't want a Bitcoin transfer. They just want to like be able to send money somewhere instantaneously without a big fee. And I think that will probably force the incumbents to make those capabilities available uh, without having to rely on Bitcoin or Solana or Ethereum or your, you know, insert your cryptocurrency of choice uh, to do it. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's multiple irons in the fire from the financial technology perspective to try and achieve that. You've got international fintechs who are just dipping into their own liquidity cross-border, so maybe skipping the uh, the Wolfsburg principles of uh, of Swift transfers. You've got Swift first; they launched GPI, and now they're trying to do low-cost instantaneous. You've got fast providers, again, effectively offering their liquidity as a service. International API first brokers like Currency Cloud. No, there's a lot of potential. And even at the central bank level, there's cross-order real-time growth settlement rather than that end-of-day net settlement. I think the most popular one I know in the UK is RTGS Global. Check those guys out if uh, if, if there's any uh, plans on expanding internationally. But no... um. Look, I think that's a pretty good deep dive on about all subjects that I, I was even aware existed in the lending space. Just for um, the, the final few moments for any listeners, is there anything else you want to get across about A, yourself, the upstart, or see what I'm thinking I'm going to call uh, making a mountain out of molehills, where each molehill is a small data point, and Upstart uses that to create a mountain of information where it can give a better decision. So yeah, that would be my tagline, making mountains out of molehills. A real-time headline creating here in the podcast. Love it. I, I don't think it's anything. I think we've covered most of the topics. I will say that I, I do have a podcast as well called Leaders in Lending, where we talk a lot about these. So if you want to know more about uh, lending and what people are doing around the world, uh, next generation stuff, uh, you can take a listen to that. And it, it was uh, I was told that in podcast names, it's all about the... Uh, the searchability. So if you want to have a podcast for lenders, you should put, you know, lending into the podcast title. So there we went with the uh, leaders in lending. Uh, we've been doing it for about two years now. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It was an act, not, not an intentional career choice for me, but I've enjoyed hosting that. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Uh, and it's available on anywhere you listen to a podcast, you can find it. You hear that listeners, uh, leaders in lending. We'll be sure to check it out. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure you clearly have uh, not only a lot of technical interest, but uh, an interest in the output and, and the effect it has on the consumers of the product. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much.